Thanks for joining the Capital Church podcast channel. For more resources and to learn more about Capital Church, please visit our website at capitalchurch.co or send us an email at info at Hello, everyone. Uh, I am so glad to be with you today. And uh, I just want to welcome everyone here uh, online. Uh, we're so blessed. I haven't been around for a couple of weeks, but we have been so blessed with an incredible teaching team. And we've had amazing messages. And I know you've been blessed. And I've heard from, from so many people how blessed you have been by the messages. And so we're just, uh, it's an honor to be a part of a teaching team uh, that loves God. And it's an honor to be a part of a church and an online community uh, that's passionate about Jesus. And so I want to commend all of you for showing up and listening uh, to uh, our messages uh, throughout the weeks. Uh, I, I just have a quick a message that I want to share with you. This is just some thoughts that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me, my heart. And uh, I'm probably going to be just like 20 minutes today. And if you could just kind of hang tight and listen to uh, some of the thoughts that the Holy Spirit's been speaking to me. So uh, today I'm going to take you through Psalm chapter 23. And this is a psalm that's really helped me over the last four or five weeks. I haven't been feeling well at all and kind of had a prolonged sickness. And uh, this psalm was... Uh, formative for me uh, as I was trying to process things and dealing with a lot of weird kind of stuff over the last few weeks. And it was something, uh, the psalm in particular, was something that really uh, helped frame my thinking. And so I just want to share just a few thoughts that, that I thought through and some thoughts that I want to share um, that I believe is from the Holy Spirit. Uh, so I'm going to read this psalm. Uh, if you have a Bible at your house, you can certainly open up. If you don't, uh, I'll read it for you. And again, many of us are familiar with Psalm 23. Uh, verse 1 reads, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness or justice, depending on the translation that you use, for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear. This is, a, this is a psalm of confidence. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And your rod and your staff, what do they do? They comfort me. Verse 5 says, you prepare a table before me, even in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, Goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So if you've never heard this poem, I'm sure you can relate to the, the personalized depth of, of it. Many of us have heard and read through this poem uh, many times. Uh, we, and, and, and this is without, I, I don't think I need to clarify this, but uh, this poem is obviously idyllic, right? And if you're a farmer or a rancher like me, you can feel kind of the bucolic mood, right? You can imagine when we read through verse one, it says that God leads us or makes us lie down in green pastures. Like, feel that, right? Feels like, or, or imagine what that would be like. I, I imagine, again, because I'm a you know, 
part-time farmer, uh, that there are cows and pastures and vast prairies. And um, I love verse 2 because I think it's so germane for what so many people are experiencing right now in this uh, in this pandemic is that God leads us as a shepherd um, by the non-anxious uh, waters. This poem, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, just kind of like a big picture um, framework, uh, if you're not familiar with any of that, uh, this poem is radically focused on assurance. And man, I don't know about you, but I think there are a lot of people in our world that need more assurance. Uh, so this poem is focused on assurance and a deep confidence in, and I love this, in the unbreakable has said is the Hebrew word for God's love. And I wish I could like tease this out or flesh this out more today, but I can't. But the poem is uh, focused. It, it's crystallized around the unbreakable love of Yahweh as the result of uh, being delivered. What's interesting, and I'm just going to nerd out, just give me like uh, two seconds, five seconds, ten seconds. Uh, but I want to nerd out just for a little bit. Psalm 23 follows the lament before in Psalm 22, where the poet in Psalm 22 uh, declares that God has forsaken him. So the placement, if the redactors took Psalm 22 and they took Psalm 23, and what they did is they placed or juxtaposed these two poems together, and it intimates something very profound. Uh, it intimates that Psalm 23 is a real lived experience, not some sentimentalized view of life. There could be some cynics out there. You're listening to me right now, and you're like, man, that sounds really stinking good, Chris. But man, that just feels way too sentimentalized for me. I, I don't know if I've ever really have experienced that or could ever experience that. Uh, many people, many scholars have said that this is a confessional poem. Uh, it's a confessional poem where the poet declares the praises of, of the Hesed of Yahweh. Uh, it's a poem that talks about or praises God's deliverance, and I think that's true. But I think more true, and other scholars would uh, suggest this as well, is that it's God's answer, Psalm 23, is God's answer that we find to the lament of forsakenness in Psalm 22. And so I just want to, if, if I could just go there right now, and just be really honest, if you're watching this right now and you feel forsaken, maybe you're watching this right now and you feel you're all alone and you're losing your stinking mind. Or maybe some of you, you, you know someone or you feel like you're at death's door. Or maybe, maybe this last three months or maybe before COVID-19 you were doing really well, you were following Jesus, um, you broke some addictions, and then COVID-19 hit and this pandemic transformed our world, and you have found yourself back into old addictions, right? Maybe that's kind of where you're at. Psalm 23 is a poem that is rooted, I want you to please hear me, not in a sentimentalized view of unreality, where we kind of hope that maybe God is with us, or God can lead us to the non-anxious waters. No, this poem is rooted in lived experience. However, and I think this is a problem for a lot of people, as one scholar introduces us to what it means to be human, many times we find this poem elusive. Uh, for example, this is what he said, this one particular scholar. He goes, our deep longings are never really satisfied. 
What this means, among other things, is that we are not restful creatures who sometimes get restless. We're not fulfilled people who sometimes are dissatisfied or maybe serene people who sometimes experience disquiet. Rather, we are restless people who occasionally find rest. We are dissatisfied people who occasionally find fulfillment and disquieted people who occasionally find serenity. We do not naturally, and please hear me, we do not naturally default into Psalm 23. We don't naturally default into rest, satisfaction, quiet, tranquility, but into their opposite. Over the next few, few weeks, we'll talk about uh, why that happens. But, uh, but, but if I'm a betting man, many of us uh, listening or reading Psalm 23 or have an, an experience with Psalm 23, we would probably say, yeah, I really like this poem, but man, Chris, it doesn't match up with my life. So what are we supposed to do about this? At, at the very end, I'm, I'm going to give you a task uh, in the next 15 minutes of, of how we can respond to maybe the elusiveness of Psalm 23. Before I do that, I just want to explain just a, a few things with this poem. This poem uh, is framed by an inclusio. It begins with God and ends with God, in other words. Uh, there are two metaphors that describe who God is in this poem. One is God is a shepherd. Two, God is uh, this exemplar of hospitality. In other words, in the words of many different scholars, he's a gracious host. In fact, this is how I want you to think about Psalm 23. It's a map of the cosmos. Think about that. It's a map of the world. It's a map of creation itself. And it shows us, in the words of one pastor, where God is relative to you. I think this is the most important question that we have to answer. If we want to confront danger, if we want to confront anxiety, if we want to confront fear, if we want to confront the difficulties in life, we have to be able to ask and answer the question, okay, where is God relative to me? Like, where is God relative to us in this pandemic, right? Where is God relative to us when we go to the grocery store and everyone is masked up and you can't see a face and it feels like we're living in a dystopian novel? Where is God? Where's God when we've lost our jobs? Where's God when we've fallen into addictions? Where's God when we get sick? Where's God when we lose someone that we dearly love? Where is God when we honestly, the, the feeling that we have that shapes the very core of our being is that we are forsaken. Where is God? Well, Psalm 23 is God's answer to that. And what we find are three aspects that shows us where God is relative to you and I. Verses one through three, it says that God is before us, before you. Verse four, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about these different aspects, but verse four says that God is beside us. And uh, finally, verse six, it says that God is behind you. In fact, he pursues you. Before I uh, uh, flesh out some of those aspects, I want to say this really quick. Uh, a French philosopher, maybe 40 years ago, summarized our secular moment that we're living in right now. His name was Michel Foucault. If you've heard of him, uh, he was a French philosopher. Uh, he deconstructed part of the postmodern uh, movement. Uh, and his theory about human history is that there were no patterns in human history. In other words, because there were no patterns in human history, at the bottom of all things, everything was meaningless, right? 
And this is, and the reason why we're talking about this is because this idea that everything is meaningless, that there's no patterns in human history, is what you and I have socialized, have been socialized into at the very beginning of, of our life. It's what we breathe. It's the, it's the cultural air we breathe. Uh, it, it's the messages that we receive every single day that honestly, when it comes down to it, there's no meaning. So what you need to do is you just need to live for the moment, right? Uh, we have to live for now. We've got to live for the present. Um, in fact, Shakespeare would, would agree with Foucault, or maybe Foucault would agree with Shakespeare when Shakespeare said, and I get this from Tim Keller, history is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing at all. In other words, what Shakespeare and Foucault are saying is there's no meaning in the cosmos. We can call this a thin view of God. Because I don't think many of us that are watching online right now would say, no, I don't, I don't know if I'm like there yet, Chris. I, I think there's purpose. I think there's meaning in life. However, I think because we've been socialized in this kind of secular culture, in this kind of way of seeing the world as just absurd and uh, meaningless, uh, we have developed a thin view of God, which is, okay, maybe God's out there, maybe he's not. And so what we do, if we're not careful, we live for other things. In fact, um, uh, I, I would even make an argument that anxiety is an inescapable feeling. It's way more than this, but anxiety is an inescap- inescapable feeling which is connected to the belief that you and I are alone in the cosmos. In fact, one uh, uh, Hebrew scholar, Derek Kidner, said this uh, as a response to Shakespeare. He said, history is not told by idiots, but it's told to idiots. And he's obviously being a little bit ludicrous here and a little bit, he's kind of caricaturing um, Shakespeare a little bit. What he's essentially saying is not that we're like stupid and we should just hate on ourselves. What he's saying is that we are human, right? Which means, and it implies that we are finite, right? We're too small to understand all of it. Now, let me just say this really quick. This should give you and I hope. Even though, And this is where the hope lies. Even though we cannot see the plan right now, right? You're trying to figure out how to get your job back or another job. You're trying to figure out how to grieve through a a big loss in your life. You're trying to figure out how to not freak out because you're sick or not feeling well or whatever it might be. The hope is this. Even though we cannot see the plan, Psalm 23 tells us we can see the planner. In fact, Psalm 23 makes it very clear that there is meaning in the cosmos. And the first thing that I want to talk about is what we mentioned before, is that the shepherd is before you and I. Verses 1 through 3, it says that the shepherd does what? He leads us. What does that mean? There is meaning in your life. There is a pattern in your life. History, please hear me, history is moving towards an end where God will wipe away every tear, where God will heal the physical, material world, renew it, and transform it. In other words, Psalm 23 tells us that there is a shepherd and that there is purpose. In the ancient Near East, one of the primary things that the shepherd does, and and shepherd has royal connotations, it implies or refers to the king or a royal authority. Uh, but the shepherd 
The primary thing that the shepherd does is to lead his people. John 10 tells us that Jesus is the king of the world and he is the good shepherd. So verses 1 through 3 tells us that he leads us, which is one of the dominant ways that God is involved in our life. He leads us into what? He leads us into flourishing. In fact, uh, the poet confidently asserts that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What's interesting, this is a promise. I shall not want. It's kind of cast in a promise. And the Hebrew verb for this, I shall not want or lack, is used, depending on your translation, is used only one other time without an object, like food or something else. It's used in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 21, and just kind of go with me really quick. Uh, and Nehemiah 9, 21 says, For 40 year, years you sustained them. God sustained his people in the wilderness. They rebelled against him, if you know the story. And what does it say? And they did not lack. That's kind of the context of Psalm 23, verse 1, that Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. What does that mean? Well, the wilderness, you have to understand, was not a place of nature. Like us modern people, like I don't know why, because you're, you're, some, some of you that are watching me, you're crazy. You love camping, right? And you love to go into the nature, right? And you love just to be out there for a couple days, and you love just the hard work, and that's great and whatever. But in the ancient uh, Near East, uh, nature, the wilderness, was seen as a dystopian wasteland. It was, it, was a, it was a place of haunting, right? It was a place where Hasatan inhabited or dwelled. Uh, what we find in the story of God's people is that because they rebelled, um, they had enemies that defeated them in the wilderness. Uh, and because God's people rebelled against God and didn't trust him, uh, they, for 40 years, went around in the wilderness, and they had no idea where they were going. But please hear me. In that moment of trying to figure out where to go, God still cared for them. God still provided for them. And here's the point that I think Psalm 23, verse 1, is making when it says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, is that, man, even in your worst possible moments, maybe something's happened to you that has nothing to do with you making a dumb decision, Right? Or maybe something's happening in your life right now because maybe you've, you've made a dumb decision or whatever. But this provision that God has for us can happen even in the worst possible moments or seasons in our life. And so the poem continues, uh, and I'm just going to read this again. It says, uh, he makes us lie down in green pastures. Uh, he leads us beside the still waters and he restores my soul. So he leads us. Here's a promise. He leads us out of the, non out of the anxiety of this world into the non-anxious, restful waters. And this is a process. Some of you right now, you're trying to break um, the power of anxiety in your life, and you can't do it. You tried, you tried, you tried, you tried, and you can't take every thought captive. Some of you, you ruminate on thoughts, and you obsess over worry, and you obsess over the future, and you imagine a future world without Jesus, and you know what that feels like. You know how that affects your body, and you've tried, and you've tried um, to defeat it. I just want to say this really quick. Jesus is your shepherd, and yes, I promise you, he will lead you out of the anxious waters into the non-anxious waters, but I want to encourage you today. It's a process. 
So don't beat yourself up. You are in the process of being led out of anxiety into uh, the good, restful waters that Jesus has for you. Uh, Jesus also restores our soul. The word soul in the Hebrew means breathing creature. It actually comes from the root word, which means to be, it's kind of cast in the passive tense, which means to be breathed upon. I find it interesting that this whole pandemic, uh, COVID-19 in particular, is a breathing disease. It's a respiratory disease. Uh, this pandemic is not something that, this, it's evil. This is not something that God has um, uh, uh, created, crafted. It's not the architecture of God where he wants to like totally humble us. No, this, this is something that goes against the very good purposes for human flourishing. We're all, in a sense, have lost our breath. And I love this passage. And this is where I really have t- taken comfort uh, in my own life over the last four or five weeks is that God comes to restore our soul, which means that God comes to restore our breath back. Not only that, he leads us in the paths of righteousness. Other translations can say justice. It is God who leads us in the paths of righteousness and justice. So let me just say this really quick. It is God who is before you right now. That is the promise that we have in Psalm 23 that is rooted not in a sentimentalized view of life, but in lived experience. And he leads. Let me just ask you this question. I heard this from Kathy Keller. And I think it's a very poignant uh, description of, of uh, being led. Uh, she comes up with a hypothetical situation. Um, let's just say you're in New York City, right? And you have no idea uh, how to get anywhere, right? And you're trying to figure out the best, the best way to get to, I don't know, maybe let's say Times Square. Uh, and let's just say you have a topographical map. That's kind of the, the metaphor that she used. We could say GPS system, right? But you're alone in your car. You're the very first time in New York City, and you're trying to get to Times Square. You have a GPS map. Um, you kind of see the big picture, right? But it's going to be difficult because you just don't know the ins and outs of New York City. Would you want that? Or... Would you want a friend who has lived in the city for 40 years, like really close friend, meets you, gets in the car, has been in the city for 40 years, maybe a taxi driver, and knows how to get you exactly where you need to go, knows when the traffic is high, knows where the construction is, know where all the obstacles are that you need to kind of navigate through or around. What choice would you make? Would you want the big picture alone trying to figure things out? Or would you rather have a friend help you navigate um, just the the complexities of living in this, or trying to get through this urban, dense center. I think all of us would choose, yeah, I would rather have a local good friend who knows all the streets, who knows how to get from A to Z. Um, And I think that's kind of what is being said here in Psalm 23, right? It's God who leads us. You don't need to be a good um, leader, You don't need to be the best. You don't need to be the strongest. You don't need to be the greatest. You know what you need to be? You need to be really good at learning the art of just following. Jesus is our shepherd, and he's like that guide who leads us uh, and helps us negotiate and navigate the obstacles, the difficulties of life. So my question for you today is, who is your shepherd? Right? Who is your shepherd? I think, and I'm going to say this as a pastor, and I've been a pastor for 25 years now. 
I think a lot of people in the church would say, yes, Jesus is my shepherd. And they say it on Sunday, and they declare it, and they mean it, right, with all of their heart. And yet they still stress out as if in, in, in a given week, as if God is not their shepherd, right? Essentially, we call this functional atheism, like, we're, we, like pastors and scholars, we make up words. Another word is situational atheism. If we're not careful as Christians, we spatialize God. Sometimes we just imagine that God is the ends of the universe, and I'm not quite sure how, how large uh, the universe is, but I heard just recently it's about 50 billion light years away, at least at the edges of what we know the universe to be. We kind of just imagine God to be at the very end or the very edges of the universe. We call this spatializing God. And we assume that, yeah, God might intervene in our life, but man, I don't know if God really cares about every little detail that I'm going through right now. I don't know if God cares about my feelings. I don't know if God cares about my moods. I don't even know if God cares about if the Dallas Cowboys are going to win or not, right? You're right with that. He doesn't care about the Cowboys. We all know that for sure. But for the rest of, uh, the rest of our lives and things that really matter to us, many of us have adopted, and maybe it's unconscious, this kind of situational atheism that, yeah, maybe God's somewhere out there, and yeah, I believe that maybe God does kind of love me, maybe, 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 perhaps, but I don't know if God really is involved um, or really cares about, like, the little details. Does God care about my breathing? Does God care about acid reflux? Does God care about the foods uh, that I need to take or the medicine that I need to take that I can't pay for? Does God care about my children who have a fever? Does God does, does God care? I think the question that many of us have in Psalm 23 is God's answer to that. Yes, God does indeed care. A lot of that questioning is, again, to take you back to uh, for the very beginning of, of time for us, the beginning of birth for us, we've been socialized into a secular way of seeing the world. In fact, um, one scholar says that this secular vision of the world comes to us by stealth. And uh, it gets past our defenses and forms the deepest part of the American psyche, even Christian Americans, even for religious believers. Uh, my graduate students, this is what he said from Africa, South America, and Asia, tell me they regularly see miracles of healing, including blind or lame pe people made well through prayer in their services. And yet, at the same time, they're befuddled at the weak faith that is characteristic of the American church. Speaking of the negative impact of secular, secularism, Dallas Willard notes this, the crushing weight of the secular outlook permeates or pressures every thought we have today. Sometimes it even forces those who self-identify as Christian teachers to set aside Jesus' plain statements about the reality and the total relevance of the kingdom of God. Let me just ask you this question. Do you believe that God is totally relevant to everything you're going through, to your sickness, your pain, your suffering, your fear, your anxiety, even the medications? Do you think God cares even about the medications you're taking? Yes, God does indeed care. But many of us, we're kind of in that kind of ambiguous in-between zone where like maybe some days we're like, yeah, God does care. And then maybe some other days we're like, I don't know if he does. And this is what Dallas Willard is um, instructing us on. We don't, we doubt the reality and we doubt the total relevance of the kingdom of God. And because we do that, we replace them with philosophical speculations whose only recommendation is their consistency with a modern contemporary mindset. He continues, 
The powerful, though vague and unsubstantiated presumption of secularism is that something has been found out that renders a spiritual understanding of reality in the manner of Jesus simply foolish to those who are in the know. Psalm 23 is a contradistinction to the secular vision of life. God leads us by the non-anxious waters. God breathes breath and life back into us. God indeed leads us in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. What's interesting about Psalm 23, really quick, is the use of the pronoun which personalizes this poem. There's no, in the words of one pastor, like they, them, right? I think one of the problems with a lot of people in the American church and probably even beyond the American church is that we see people, maybe you go in your social media platforms and you see people blessed, or maybe we have testimonies in church where we hear of people being blessed and we just always assume, well, God, why them and not me? And maybe you're really excited for all the wonderful stories of God blessing or healing or transforming someone's life. But we, if we're not careful, we kind of get into this. We kind of adopt the grammar of they, them, and we take God's blessing and we take the pronouns they and them, and we associate that with God's blessing. But here, and what we find in Psalm 23, is how this poem personalizes God's relationship, his partnership, his fellowship with us. It's, there's no they, there's no them, there's only me. Not a narcissistic me, um, just a living concern by God for me. I love that. And then when we come to verse 4, it shifts to, um, from the poet for the first three verses talking about God to the poet talking to God. So the poet says, God, you're like this. And then in verse 4, it says, in fact, it's almost as if God, excuse me, the poet is directly speaking to God, Yahweh himself saying, no, 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 you are with me. And I want to read verse 4. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. They comfort me. It's in the valley of the shadow of death, which refers obviously to the wilderness of the dystopian wasteland that we talked about, that God took his people through, wherein God blessed and provided for his people this certainly is the reference of going through the valley of the shadow of death, but it broadly can mean anything. I think many of us feel the touch, or many of us maybe are living in the shadow of the valley of death right now. You lost your job. You've experienced a loss in your family or just some generalized loss, and you know you're in the valley of the shadow of death. So what should we do? Right? How should we respond to that? There's three things that I want to say about this really quick regarding verse 4. Number one, um, the poem or the poet says, we don't stay in the valley of the shadow of death. Please hear me. We go through it. I felt this. I was praying for you this morning, and I really feel like there's some people you're watching right now, and you've actually told yourself this week or within this last month that you're stuck. You're not going to make it through. Maybe you're stuck in your sickness. Maybe you're stuck in your addiction. Maybe you're stuck in habits of thinking. Maybe you're stuck in, I'm just going to be restless for the rest of my life, or I'm just not going to be able to make it. I'm just going to go from job to job to job, and this always happens, and this always breaks, or I'm stuck, I'm stuck, I'm stuck. Maybe that's what you've told yourself. That's been your self-talk. 
Well, the promise, this is a promise. And you might not feel this. I get it. I think we've all experienced um, feeling stuck and someone coming up and saying, you're going to get through it. We're like, ah, you, you just, you can't feel it. But we have a promise in Psalm 23 is that when we go through the valley of the shadow of death, we won't stay in the valley of the shadow of death. Number one, God will get you through your pain, your suffering, your addiction, your shame. Some of you are experiencing shame right now. You're doing good before COVID-19. COVID-19 hit, you were alone, and you've kind of lapsed back back into maybe bad habits. Can God get you out of that shame? Yes, you do not have to stay stuck. Your God is with you. Number two, uh, there's great growth and maturity in the valley. What you find in verse four is there's a shift in the grammar from the poet talking about God to the poet talking to God, which shows us, if we want this, it shows us how we can find greater depths of knowing Jesus in the valley. Uh, For example, uh, it was about seven years ago, my wife and I took our, we have seven children, it feels like 19 children, but at the time we only had three uh, children, and uh, we were taking a walk in the mountains. And my wife and I were talking about grizzly bears. We just like to talk about Bigfoot and grizzly bears and everything. And my son Quincy was about maybe three or four, and uh, we didn't realize that he was listening to us. And um, I kind of noticed, I looked over, and I kind of noticed that he was paying attention to our conversation about grizzly bears, and I could see in his eyes that he was getting really afraid. And so I think I did something, you know, dads do this. Dads, moms are better than dads, okay, we'll just admit it. But as a dad, I just wanted to do it. I pointed my finger at some obscure little figure, and I said, a grizzly bear. And I shouldn't have done it. It was horrible. But I, I, I remember as if it was yesterday, my son came. He was probably like five feet away from me, looked at me with terror in his eyes, grabbed my body, and climbed up my body. I don't know if you ever experienced this before, but he had adrenaline surging through his body. And literally, he was on the top of my head in a matter of like two seconds, right? And uh, in that moment, Quincy, and I, it, was a, it was a bad dad moment, but it, it was kind of funny. Please don't judge me uh, at home. But what Quincy found out in that moment was not that I was far and that I had come close to rescue him from a fictionalized bear, right? What he found out that I was right there the whole time, and maybe that was a horrible example, and again, you're like, this is just a horrible analogy, Chris, but just go with it. Quincy found out that I was right there the whole time. I wasn't far, I wasn't distant, right? And I think the point that I want to make is that there are a lot of people that you go through life and you kind of drift through life. We all do it. And we form these unconscious beliefs that God, and we feel it, that God is far from us. What happens, though, when we go through the valley is that if we want it, we can go in one or two directions. We can drift more away from God or we can allow the valley to draw us closer to God. But it's in the valley that we jettison our theoretical understanding of God for a personalized and more real understanding of who the Holy Spirit is. And that is when we can say with confidence, not with like, okay, maybe I don't have to be afraid, but it's with confidence as we draw closer to Jesus and we begin to experience his presence and we begin to realize, no, 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 God has not been far the whole time. 
it's me who has been far the whole time. And it's in the valley that we draw closer to God. And that's when we can say with full assurance and full confidence, I will fear no evil. I will fear no pandemic. I will fear not this addiction. I will not fear fear itself. I will not fear anxiety. I will not fear this symptom. I will not fear the future. I will not even fear death itself. Why? Because God is with us. And this is the great message that we find in the Gospels, in particular in the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew begins with God with us, God Emmanuel, and ends with Jesus telling his disciples, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. We have a promise, and this is the, this is the rock-bottom reality of our lives as followers of Jesus, and this is the soil by which our faith grows from. It's this, no matter what season you're in, God is with you. He's not just above you. He's not just far from you. He's not distant from you. He's not just maybe every now and then involved in your life. We are not situational atheists. No, God is intimately involved in the idiosyncrasies of our daily life. And I think that's something we all at home can say amen to. Three, um, when we're in the valley, I want you to hear me, we can hear Jesus speak more clearly. Why? Well, as I mentioned before, because when we're in the valley, the shadow of death, it forces us as followers of Jesus to draw closer to him. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the particles, and this is kind of like my paraphrase, the particles and, the gra- and gravity and the subatomic world and, and supernovas and people and reality itself were made. One scholar says that we inhabit a communicating cosmos as he was riffing off of Psalm 33. So, Chris, what does that mean? What does it mean to live in a communicating cosmos? What does it mean that God created reality itself through its word? What does it mean that it's in the valley that we can hear Jesus, cle- uh, hear Jesus speak more clearly? It just simply means that God wants to speak to us. And if we want to, as we go through difficult times or for frustrated with maybe being stuck, and we're like, man, I just want to get through this pandemic, or I just, man, I wish it was 2021. I think we all have been there before. If we can allow that to to draw us closer to Jesus, I I promise you, God is not, in the words of one scholar, a a non-communicative dummy. God is not a vague, zen-like force. No, God is a communicator. And many people are surprised uh, that God should speak to them. I think, in the words of one scholar, we should be surprised if God does not speak to us. And as we draw closer to Jesus during this pandemic and during maybe the the frustrations of injustice or whatever we might be experiencing, that is when we can hear the voice of God clearly. And then finally, so let me just clarify really quick. One, God is before us, right? He leads us. Two, God is not just before us who leads us and forgets about us. God is beside us in our difficult moments. And then number three, God is behind us. As we find in verse um, five and six, God is an exemplar of hospitality. Right? We call this, scholars call this gate liturgy. Gate liturgy. The longing of God's people was to um, 
have a feast with God himself. This longing goes all the way back to, we can trace it all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. I don't have time to talk about this. But verse 5 tells us that our God is a gracious host who wants to feed us good things. But in verse 6, it says that God is behind us. The emphasis is on said, And I want to read this really quick. It says, surely, as we close, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I love the emphasis on said. It's goodness and said, or we could, we could translate said as steadfast love. As I mentioned at the very beginning of this talk, said is God's unbreakable. It's unbreakable. You can't break it. It's God's unbreakable love for you. God's said, in other words, not just follows you. It's not just behind you but it pursues you. Uh, I want to read what one scholar says about this. This verb to follow or to pursue is often used to describe the hostile actions of enemies. If you're reading Hebrew lit or Hebrew poetry, one might expect when you come across this verb um, that uh, you would see the psalmist em- uh, enemies that are chasing him. But ironically, when we come to Psalm 23, we see it's God's goodness and faithfulness not the psalmist or the poet's enemies who are chasing him. It's God's goodness and faithfulness that pursue him instead. The word pursue at the end in verse 6 is used outside of its normal context in an ironic manner and creates a unique but pleasant word picture of God's favor. Or we could say this, a radically generous God is chasing you down. And he loves you with an unbreakable love. I think many of us think the opposite. We have, and and, um, anthropologists will tell you this, and psychologists will tell you this. We are wired, and I think we can connect this to Genesis chapter 3 and human rebellion and human folly. But we are wired for a negativity bias. But here, and I think because of that negativity bias, we just assume that bad things, right? We have this nagging sense that's like Murphy's Law, what can happen will happen. We just kind of assume maybe bad things are just going to happen or maybe bad things are going to chase me down. But we have a promise that no matter what we go through, it is God's has said his unbreakable love, his steadfast love that chases us down. So, Chris, as we close, how do, how do, we, how do we enter this? How do we appropriate this? How do we not just, like, think about this occasionally? How, do, how does this become... A reality because I'm tired of, uh, and, and you most likely, most likely agree with me, you're tired of being restless and having moments of rest. You're tired of, of being a, a person who lacks peace all the time, but you, want to, but you have maybe temporary moments of peace. And you're like, you're saying, Chris, today, I want, I want to make a decision to enter into this where it's, it's a reality. This Psalm 23 is a defining reality, irrespective of what I go through. I want to know this, in the words of one uh, translation, this wraparound God who's before me, beside me, and behind me. So what do we do? Well, we can start this week. And I just, I, I want to give you a challenge. This might be hard for some of us, maybe for some of us not so much. But I want to challenge you to pray this psalm every day. And I want you to pray it out loud. I want you to declare this. I want you to walk through this psalm, and I want you to speak it. And I want you to declare it. And I promise you, as you do this, it will begin to change how you think. I don't know if you know this, 
but psychologists will tell you, you feel the way you think. You feel the way you believe. You feel the way in which you occupy your, or occupy your mind with. We feel and we have moods that are inextricably tied to what we think about. How do we change how we think? How do we enter into this psalm? We can enter it by praying it, by declaring it. And as we do that, it will change us. It's, it's funny. It's, it, the more we do something, and neuropsychologists um, will tell you this, the more something happens to us, right? Matter matters. We, we talk about this all the time. God made your body, right? He designed your body. You're like a living bio, I'm not a machine. I don't want to say machine, but you're a living biodynamic thing that God has made. You, you're, you're made up of em, you're an embodied consciousness, right? We could say it like that. And everything about you matters. And what we know uh, tying this back to neuropsychologists, is that there's something about neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is the idea that our brains can physically change through habit-forming behavior. So the more you speak something, the more you declare something, the more you say something, the more you pray this psalm, the more something happens to your brain, right? The more something happens to you and the, and the physical matter of, of your, your body. But more than that, as we pray this, Something spiritual will take place in your heart. So let's do this this week. Let's take seven days. You can do longer, maybe shorter if you would like. But let's commit to praying this and declaring this over our lives. I want to pray for you. You can close your eyes at home. You don't have to. Uh, but if there's anyone here today, you'd say, Chris, um, I, I have moments of peace. I have moments of happiness. Weekends I love, but I hate my job. I'm messed up. I'm broken. Uh, I don't know what to do with my life. And uh, what you're talking about is what I want. I want Jesus. I want him to come in and take over my life. I'm still kind of in that maybe. I'm not quite sure where God is relative to me. I might not be feeling everything that you're talking about. But, but Chris, I want that. I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want his peace. I want to enter into that dynamic fellowship that dynamic partnership with God. If that's you, I just want you to repeat this prayer after me. And it's, it's a simple prayer. You're just inviting the living God into your life. Dear Jesus, I ask you would come in and that you would fill every heart with your presence. I ask you would come and change us. For those who want to give their life to you right now, I ask that you would Come and make yourself known to them. Oh, let Psalm 23 become a living reality in their life right now. Jesus, I thank you that you're in charge of human history. Jesus, I thank you. There's meaning and there's purpose and there's hope. I thank you that you're, you're going you're gonna to get us through this pandemic. And I believe that this pandemic, it doesn't come from you. It's a great evil. But I do believe it's drawing us closer to you. And so, Father, I thank you for those who are committing their lives to you. Jesus, come in and radically transform them. Lord, we believe that Jesus, Lord, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, you died on the cross for our sins, you were buried, and then you bodily came back from the dead. Lord, that is our rock-bottom reality. And, Lord, we put our trust in that as our reality. And we thank you, Father, that you would right now speak 
to us. Secondly, I pray for those who have no peace right now, those who are anxious, those who want to be by the restful waters. I just ask Jesus that you would lead them to the waters that bring restoration. Lord, I just ask right now you would bring hope. I ask you would bring courage. I ask that people would know that we're not stuck in this pandemic. We're not stuck in our sickness. We are not stuck in despair. We are not stuck in sin. We are not stuck in shame or in our addictions. We are, as followers of Jesus, we are going to get through this. And I thank you that everyone would know right now that you are with them today in Jesus' name. Just want to say uh, I love you guys. You guys are amazing. God bless you. We, we will be, pre- uh, be praying for you uh, this entire week. Uh, we love you. My wife and I, we cannot wait to see you. If you're in the Boise area, please come uh, this Sunday as we celebrate church in the lawn and uh, as we gather together in the presence of Jesus, uh, praying for our city. So have a wonderful week, and uh, I can't wait to see you next week. God bless.